Hey there. Do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Pete Brown Says. This is Episode Zero. Homecoming, on memory, plus the view from under the bus. Hi there, I'm Pete Brown, and I remember things. And sometimes I organize these things into stories. And sometimes these stories are thought to be pretty good stories. How's that story? Pretty good. In this season of my podcast, Pete Brown Says, I'm going to share 10 stories that I think are pretty good between now and the end of 2017. This is episode zero, the one you put up just to make sure everything is working right with getting the podcast into iTunes, Google Play, everywhere it needs to go. I'm also using it as an opportunity to tell you a bit about me, about how my memory works, and why I think podcasts are the exact right medium for these 10 stories. Plus, I'm going to wrap up this episode with a quick bonus story that will give you a flavor of what's to come. Now, I should mention that I have a pretty good, albeit random, memory. I remember many things in great detail. Do you know how you probably remember exactly where you were when you heard about the attacks on September 11th? You have a Or for some of you, when you heard about the Challenger explosion. Obviously a major malfunction. Or President Reagan being shot. Here you see the president coming out now. You just have to watch. I don't know if we can hear this or not. There it is. Shots. Or maybe you or your parents shared with you where they were when JFK was assassinated. A flash from Dallas. Two priests who were with President Kennedy say he is dead. My memory can be a lot like this, only I remember things that are not necessarily tied to major dramatic events. They might be specific classes I took 30 years ago in grade school. And by classes, I don't mean what subject I took. I mean specific 40-minute periods. They might be conversations I overheard on the school bus. Oftentimes, when I run into someone that I haven't seen for a few years, I can pick up our conversation right where we left it. And I have to admit, this seems to freak people out a little bit. Here's what a few of my friends had to say when I asked them about their experience of my memory. I will say Pete's brain during the college years were definitely, uh, it was definitely humming because here we are almost 30 years later and uh, he can still recall memories from that time like it was yesterday. So that is pretty astounding. You'll, you'll be sitting there talking and Pete will, will bring up a story and he'll start going into the story and his memory will start to click in and he starts to say these details. And as he says, says them, you sit there and you have to take pause. You're like, wait, wait a second. Without fail, anytime there is a get-together with high school classmates, Pete is able to recall a story, a football stat, a family member, a situation that the rest of us have long forgotten. I mean, any odd detail about what we did, road trips, uh, who we hung out with, who we dated. I think the best thing about Pete's memories are that, is that they're unembellished. But Pete's, uh, his, his memories are always tried and true, exactly the way they happened. Um, and I love that. You know, if you look up the percentage of people that actually have photographic memories, how much the percentage is stupid small. 
But how many times do you come across someone that's like, oh yeah, I got a photographic memory. Yeah, f you, you don't have shit. You're not Pete f***ing Brown. When we first met, um, I really liked your memory a lot because it seemed very writerly to me, like the details that you remembered and the stories that you could tell. It was full of narration and concrete details and funny moments and poignant moments, too. When people would say things like, how do you remember all that? You know, I would hear them say that to you. And But with Pete, knowing his, I like to call his eclectic memory, his ability to remember a great deal, but also the little nuances and details that you wouldn't remember or don't think are significant, and he remembers it. But as the years have gone by, though, I'd have to say that um, my perspective on that has changed. One thing I will say about Pete's memory is that it's not always the best memories. You know, usually people remember fond memories or things that they want to remember, and Pete's are usually and oftentimes the opposite. They're kind of goofy or sad memories that uh, people maybe want to forget. So uh, if Pete's ever at a party and he brings up that stuff, sometimes uh, people want to kick his In the course of our marriage, I've been baffled by having to hear some of the same stories over and over, repeated in minute detail, like Chumley peeing on the bus, the poor kid and his McDonald's, the crazy underpants man, the girl who liked your voice. There's there's all these stories that you kind are kind of like touchstones for you, and I almost feel like you're compelled to tell them. And I often feel haunted by your adolescence. And not only do I feel haunted by your adolescence, I'm also haunted by every thing I've ever said to you. You seem to be able to remember those things pretty well, too. And yet you can't remember simple things like what foot I had my recent surgery on or what kind of TP clogs our toilets, that it's important to eat. That might be a good thing for you to remember to eat a few times a day. Often it's like your memory is in it for the long haul of Pete's interests, but in regard to other people, it's extremely myopic. And it, it uh, at times is a little frustrating. Sometimes it's great, and then at other times, something that I would think would be really important for you to remember, it, it's just you're, you act like you never heard me tell you the information before. So it's a blessing and a curse. Quick thanks to my friends there, Hake, Schaff, Chip, and Lothar, and of course to my wife Jody there at the end. We've been married for almost 23 years. The woman's a saint. Though I will say, after I heard her say she's haunted by my adolescence, I suggested that maybe she give this season of the podcast a hard pass. Even though the stories that she mentioned, Chumley peeing on the bus, the hamburger story, crazy underwear man, none of these stories is on tap for season one. So Chumley, you're welcome. When we remember things, like where we were when we learned about the attacks on 9-11, it's called a flashbulb memory. It usually includes lots of sensory details surrounding that moment. Things like the feel of the wind, or the quality of the light, the bend of a nearby branch, or a certain smell. The psychologist who coined the term flashbulb memory theorized that because there is so much emotion overwhelming us at these times, that our memory starts recording everything in detail so that we might parse through the emotions later and make some sense of it. 
This theory makes sense to me because I have a lot of trouble reading emotion on people or recognizing deeply emotional moments that I find myself in. And it could be that my memory starts recording this stuff just so that I might sort through it later and make some sense of it. Really, this podcast is that sorting process. Honestly, I cannot control what my memory is going to remember to this level of detail. I can rattle off the batting averages of the 1977 Cleveland Indians. Tell you every phone number I've ever had in my life, or bring up a conversation we might have had at your locker between classes 30 years ago about the rock band Poison and how you said you could smell their makeup when they took the stage that night at the Agora. But I can't tell you what day is garbage day in the township I've lived in for 15 years, or what time I'm supposed to pick my son up after marching band, or if I paid the gas bill, or even I think maybe I put the gas bill on auto pay but I'm not sure. So if my memory is my superpower, it's one that's totally uncontrolled and bent towards the trivial, I'm afraid. Sometimes this is a curse. Knowing, for example, what was on the cover of my neighbor's People magazine that was mistakenly delivered to my house in 2003. By the way, it was, my baby saved my life. No Billy Bob, no craziness, and for the past year, no sex. Why? Angelina Jolie says all that matters now is son Maddox, age two. I love that age two that they added to the subhead because there's a picture of Angelina Jolie holding this two-year-old on the cover and some editor must have been like, we better put age two so nobody mistakes him for a three-year-old. My brain is full of stuff like this. And yet I have to work really hard to remember the name of that one red-headed kid that my 14-year-old daughter's been besties with for three years or her other friend, the one that's always laughing. My 16-year-old son's friends all seem to me to be giant blobs of hair that speak only when they want junk food. It is definitely worth noting that flashbulb memories aren't necessarily more accurate than our standard autobiographical ones. We think they are because there's so much detail in them, but they're subject to the same vulnerabilities as regular memories. Over time, our brains futz with memories, all of them. This is why I say that this show is written to the best of my memory, for whatever that's worth at any given time. If you are someone who was in or around these stories and remembers things differently, I don't doubt your recollection. In fact, I'd be fascinated to know if anyone else in their late 40s still finds themselves thinking through stuff that happened on the grade school playground on a regular basis, walking the line between amusement and torment. I can only promise you that I'm being as honest and forthright as I can in remembering these stories and sharing them with you. There are 10 episodes planned for this season, although I wouldn't rule out a bonus 11th once things start rolling. Categorically, these stories are works of creative nonfiction audio of memoir steeped in nostalgia. I am 46 years old and have been writing professionally for more than half my life. Yet these are stories that I've never snuck into a screenplay, short story, novel, newspaper column, VO script, radio spot, video game, blog post, online course, or technical manual, all of which are things I have written over the years. I think they're pretty good stories, but they've been held up as I searched for the right medium for them. And with this season, I'm testing my thesis that podcasting is that medium. Okay, let's cut to the chase now. What are these pretty good stories I keep talking about? It's a fair question. This, of course, is episode zero, which, as I said, is a bit of a placeholder episode that lets you test your publishing workflow. But then I figured, hell, I mean, even though it's episode zero, you're here now, so it seems like the least I can do is share a short, fast story that will give you the flavor of the show that will follow. 
I want to tell you that for a very long time, I wasn't sure what that short story should be. Until last week, when the weather turned here in central Ohio, and the smells of fall stretched across my neighborhood, and this story blew up my driveway like a leaf on the wind. You ready? Let's do this. Homecoming, plus the view from under the bus. It's the first day of fall here in central Ohio as I write these words. This weekend is homecoming at my kids' high school. Earlier tonight, I drove them to the school and dropped them off for the homecoming bonfire and pep rally. Did your high school have a bonfire during homecoming week? It's usually a controlled fire with the fire department standing nearby, and often effigies of the upcoming football game's opponent are burned while the crowd cheers and the band, as they say, plays on. Sometimes there are speeches from coaches, players, and students. There are cheers from cheerleaders. And when it's over, everyone goes home with their clothes smelling a little bit like smoke. Homecoming in the United States is an odd amalgam of traditions. While several colleges and universities lay claim to having the first homecoming game, both Trivial Pursuit and Jeopardy give the nod to the University of Missouri, whose athletic director, a man named Chester Brewer, invited alumni to come home to Mizzou for their border war game against the University of Kansas in 1911. And the alumni arrived by the thousands. Other schools claim to have had homecoming games that predate Mizzou's 1911 game. These include Southwestern University in Texas, Baylor also in Texas, Illinois and Northern Illinois, both in Illinois. But it was around this 1911 game that schools began to see the value of having a homecoming weekend each season. And in the 106 years since then, you can see how different traditions grew up in connection to the weekend. A big dance after the game seemed like a no-brainer. And as long as you're having a dance, you might as well pick a king and queen. And homecoming royalty, of course, they need a homecoming court. What I really like about homecoming is how it looks both forward and backwards in time simultaneously. For the students experiencing these traditions for the first time, it's a full week of fun, punctuated by a football game under the bright lights on a Friday night and a big dance on Saturday. Their eyes shine as their whole future spreads out before them, brimming with potential. And we who come home for these events, we get to remember those times in our lives, to connect ever so obliquely with our past, with happy memories of crisp fall nights smelling of smoke. I have not been able to find out who had the first homecoming bonfire, but it's easy to imagine how it came to be part of the tradition for many schools. My guess is a group planning a pep rally thought it might be cool to do it outside with a big old fire to light up the night. Some colleges today have massive engineered bonfires, including the University of Arizona, Dartmouth, and quite famously, Texas A&M, whose 59-foot-tall, 5,000-log bonfire structure collapsed as it was being built in 1999, killing 12 students and injuring 27 more. The Aggies were getting ready for their annual game against the University of Texas Longhorns, and in the Lone Star State, it just doesn't get any bigger. But tonight, Texas is in mourning. In College Station, a huge pile of logs set up for the traditional bonfire collapsed. I was a Cub reporter in Central Texas when this happened, and I was sent out to talk to the Aggie alumni in the area and get their reactions. All of them grieved the tragedy, but to a person, they all said the tradition should go on. A specially appointed Texas A&M committee studying the collapse came to the same conclusion, and the bonfire continues to this day. 
Although, as Wikipedia notes, many schools have discontinued the bonfire tradition for being too dangerous. Our local high school, where my kids go, is just over 12 years old now, so there's not a ton of alumni to come home for this weekend's game. The bonfire, too, was a well-managed affair, and much smaller, my freshman daughter tells me, than she thought it would be. Still, effigies burned, speeches were made, cheerleaders cheered, and the band, including my son on baritone, played on. I graduated high school in 1989, and my school in the western suburbs of Cleveland had a mid-sized bonfire on the Thursday of homecoming week when I was a student. It was accompanied by a junk car smash-up, which was about what it sounds like. A junker car was procured, the homecoming opponent's name was sprayed all over it, and for 50 cents, you could take a swing at it with a giant sledgehammer. I don't know if other schools do this, but my assumption always has been that we had this activity so that our more wound-up students could burn off some of the excess energy that all these pep rallies create. Around the bonfire, a trailer bed served as a makeshift stage. The marching band and the demonettes surrounded the fire. Students came and cheered. Each student organization was invited to say a few words. Most were quick and to the point. Things like, the Key Club wants you to crush the comets. And then people would cheer and someone from Key Club would add something to the fire. My junior year, I was a sports writer and photographer for our school newspaper, The Green and White. I was at the bonfire shooting pictures, trying hard to figure out the tricky lighting the event posed before I ran through all 12 shots left on my roll of film. I was surprised when I heard them announce the editor of our paper, a senior named Scott, as a speaker. Usually the paper covered these kinds of events. Rarely did we take part. But Scott got up on the trailer bed, took the mic, and said, I want to read you all something from the green and white. I stopped taking pictures because I suspected what was coming. Our football team was struggling that year and had lost a game a few weeks earlier, in part because of a missed extra point. In writing about the game, I had said something to the effect of, as the crowd in the stands chanted two, 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 our conservative coaching staff chose to go for an extra point in overtime, disregarding the momentum that the late score had given our squad. Now, I had friends on the football team, some of whom grumbled to me when I first wrote that story, and others who simply couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of a student questioning the coaches. But we agreed to disagree on it. And the truth is that now, 30 years later, I think I'd probably make the same call that the coaches did. But 16-year-old me was far more bold and far more naive, and the thought of going for anything less than two seemed inconceivable. This was indeed the sentence that Scott read to the crowd, and the crowd booed, heartily booed. Now those few sentences were certainly not the only things I wrote in the school paper that got people grumbling at me. And in truth, they were fairly tame compared to the criticisms I flung around once I was a senior and an editor. Still, I wondered what Scott was getting at by reading these lines to the crowd. Then he said, Tonight, I'm burning all the remaining copies of this issue of The Green and White. And he added, Crush the comets. And as the crowd cheered, he climbed off the trailer and flung about 50 copies of the paper towards the fire. I remember that while most of them went in, a handful of pages were blown back out of the fire. I close my eyes and I can see those white pages fluttering in the night, the yellow glow on Scott's face as he watched this happen, and the comical scene of him running around trying to gather up these freedom seekers and put them back into the flames. The crowd loved this, by the way. Every tiny bit of it. And that's the story of the very first time I was ever thrown under the bus. I didn't use that phrase at the time. In fact, in researching this piece, I learned that a lot of sources agree that the phrase under the bus didn't come into common use until the early 1990s, which was a few years after that bonfire occurred. 
We use that phrase all the time now, especially in business and politics. And I think it's tempting to say that the phrase under the bus means blaming someone for doing something wrong. But I think it's a bit more acute than that. It's blaming someone who's ostensibly on your side for doing something that's wrong or reflects poorly on you. Either way, it's a crummy thing to do, throwing someone under the bus. But I'm sure we all have, or at least have been tempted to do it at least once. For example, I asked my friend Chip if he could dig up his old green and whites from that year so I could be sure to get the wording of that sentence straight. But guess what? He wasn't able to do it in time for this episode. You see that? Just like that, chips under the bus. In many of the stories I'll share this season, my memories are triggered by something happening in my present. A word or phrase overheard, a smell, something I've seen along the path of my life. And as you'll learn, buses come up a lot in these stories. I rode a school bus for almost two hours each day from first until eighth grade. And the school bus, as you might also know, is where all sorts of growing up fast has to occur. It's a rolling thunderdome with minimal supervision and no Tina Turner. It's where you hear about things in the adult world that confuse and fascinate you at the same time, starting with the validity of Santa Claus and moving quickly into things like firecrackers and where babies actually come from. And the school bus is where you will learn for the first time that for the better part of your life, you're going to be on your own, that most standers-by, or sitters-by, I should say, will simply turn away and pretend not to see whatever beatdown may be happening in the back two rows. You learn how to cover your head. You practice the art of infighting, like a boxer stepping inside on his opponent and throwing short, fast jabs that pop. In the 1980s, bullying and bus beatdowns, they weren't such a big deal like they are now. They were just something you endured, because on the school bus, you learned quite early on, it's every man for himself, or every woman for herself. So even if I had the phrase thrown under the bus to describe the feeling I had walking home from the bonfire that night, it still would have felt far more survivable and preferable to being on the bus itself. And I learned at age 16 and in the years to follow that you don't go into the business of writing to please people. You do it to chase down a truth, to argue your beliefs, to pose and deepen important questions, often uncomfortable questions. And you do it because honestly, at the end of the day, there's just no way you can simply not do it. It is as if it has chosen you and not the other way around. And that's why these stories in this season of the show are here. They won't let me rest until they're told, which I have endeavored to do in the best way I can. You are welcome, if you are so moved, to print them out and take them to the nearest bonfire. I don't mind being thrown under the bus. I have, as they say, been there before. Good times, everybody. Good times. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. And while I like to think my memory is better than average, I should also acknowledge that it's been 30 or more years since many of these stories have taken place. And as any cognitive neurologist will tell you, it's all but certain my memory has futzed with these narratives during that time. But this is honestly how I remember these things, and that's what I'm sharing in this show my memory of them. If you like the show, can I ask you to take five minutes and leave a review on iTunes? More than anything else you can do, this will really help get these stories in front of more people. If online reviews aren't your thing, maybe just tell a friend or two that there's this quirky new podcast that they should check out. 
You can read an essay version of today's main story at PeteBrownSays.com, where I also put a featured image for each show, usually something that was in the episode itself. The written essays usually have some additional materials and content that was cut from the audio production, as well as links to other things mentioned in the show. There's also a Patreon link at PeteBrownSays.com, so if you'd like to kick in a few dollars to help offset the production and hosting costs, I'd super appreciate it. Finally, you can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash PeteBrownSays, on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Brown Says, and also over on Medium at medium.com slash Pete Brown Says. I, I literally just set up the Instagram account, and so it has two followers uh, who both happen to be my children, and in fact don't know that they followed me because I took their phones and did it. Music in this show comes from a variety of sources. The opening and interstitial music is by Brian Hake. Additional interstitials are by Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, as performed by their now-defunct band, Delicious. Additional background tracks and sound effects come from the websites audionautics.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, and freesound.org, and are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes on PeteBrownSays.com for complete attributions. Special thanks to my friends for miscellaneous audio pickups in this episode, including musician Brian Hake, former fellow Green and White reporter Chip Midnight, community motorcycle garage proprietor Shaf Shafran, who is no longer a sign maker by trade, by the way, and of course, to my amazing wife of 23 years and counting, Jody Brown. That wraps up episode zero, everybody. Episode one will be published on Monday, October 9th, and episode two on Monday, October 16th. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, good times, everybody. Good times. remembers everything except for one thing he forgot that he owes me 50 bucks